Hi everyone, I'm Ava Brown and I'm the Vice President of Community Outreach for Smile Child. And I'm Ilona Overstreet. I am the Director of Events for Smile Child. So just a little bit about Smile Child. It's a Columbus nonprofit that empowers caregivers by providing comprehensive education and resource connections to ensure that each baby has the chance to smile. We're fighting infant mortality using multiple approaches, using an incentive-driven module-based smartphone application, as well as community events. In order to make key information more possible, Smile Child is partnering with Moms-to-be and researchers at Nationwide Children's Hospital to implement an educational app focusing on topics such as smoking and safe sleep practices for infants. We also host community events to increase general knowledge and awareness for infant mortality in Central Ohio. With these strategies, Smile Child aims to bridge gaps in education and help end preventable infant death. Tonight, we're hosting a panel to discuss topics relevant to infant mortality. We're joined by a diverse group of experts in the Columbus area. If each of you could please provide a brief introduction about yourself um, and your background, that'd be great. Dr. Gabby, um, would you mind starting us off, please? Okay, I'm Dr. Pat Gabby. I'm a pediatrician and I have a uh, Master of Public Health. So I have a dual interest in moms, babies, public health, the community. Um, I'm founded Moms-to-be in 2010 here at Ohio State. And so it's a great um, merge of my interests and my expertise. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here to help you understand what I've learned over 10 years working with pregnant women living in high-risk conditions. Thank you so much for joining. Um, Dr. Cullen, would you also be able to introduce yourself a little, please? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Cynthia Colon. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology, as well as in the College of Public Health. Um, I am trained as a health demographer, and most of my research examines racial and ethnic health disparities in the United States, with a particular focus on um, the impact that racial discrimination has on health outcomes, uh, both within a single generation and across multiple generations. Thank you for joining us as well. Um, Dr. Siebert, would you also be able to share a little about your background, please? Yes. So my name is um, Eric Siebert. I'm a professor in the Division of Health Services Management and Policy in OSU's College of Public Health. I also direct the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Evaluation Studies. I'm trained as an economist, but almost all my work now is in health policy, especially health insurance. And most of my work, I guess you described, revolves around just really how do we pay for healthcare? Yeah, that's a super important question right now, definitely. Um, thank you for joining us too. Really excited to have all of you and each of your different perspectives I think will be super valuable um, with this issue. So thank you. Um, if everyone's ready, we can go ahead and get started with a question for Dr. Gabby. Um, if at any point you wanna jump in and add your perspective to the question, um, feel free after the panelist who's been addressed has finished. Um, we'd love to hear from all of you for any questions. So um, we'll get started then. Uh, Dr. Gabby, um, we know it's Moms to Be's 10th birthday this year. What improvements have you seen at the Wexner Medical Center and with Moms to Be since its inception? Well, you want a whole 10 years of history. Okay, <laughs> in a capsule. Um, you know, I wrote a grant to Ohio State in 2010 
It was a seed grant, and I was granted $48,000. I'm a professor at Ohio, at Ohio State, but also at Nationwide Children's. And I started Moms to Be at from Nationwide Children's. And I wrote the grant because I've been on Governor Strickland's Infant Mortality Task Force, and we'd spent a year doing all this study and interviewing professionals about how to attack the high disparities in infant deaths in Ohio and the high overall rate of infant mortality in Ohio. And I had a lot of experience taking care of African-American families with these gorgeous babies. And I wanted to know why we had such high rates of infant deaths in black neighborhoods. It really disturbed me. And I said, we've got to go in the neighborhood and we've got to talk to these moms. We have to learn from them. What, what are the factors that are, are happening in their lives? This was 10 years ago. We had two moms and we started in an African-American church in Wineland Park. So two moms, they were pregnant and we still have contact with them. 10 years later. So what That's we great. learned is we need to hear the moms develop a program that addresses their needs in terms of health and social determinants. It's a, it's a really a bipartisan uh, risks. They have a huge number of medical conditions and a huge number of social risk factors. And so we celebrated our 10th birthday. And so where are we today? We've seen over 3000 moms and we've learned that it's the pregnancy, but we follow the mom and the baby until that baby turns one year old. We've become part of the OSU Wexner Medical Center health delivery system. So you are talking to me on a huge milestone of ours. We went from being like a little nubbin, um, an appendage in the whole system. And now we are part of the delivery system as of this week. So what we've seen is a huge acknowledgement and recognition of both disparities and the need for the health system to get into the community to help address the social determinants of health. And, you know, we can discuss that in a lot more length, but that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, congratulations to moms to be, as that is a huge milestone um, and definitely something that Smile Child aspires to do at some point. So thank you for um, sharing about that. Um, moving along, we have a question for Dr. Siever now. So we know that mental health is a huge issue that affects a variety of health outcomes. Could you talk about how mental health is funded in Ohio? <laughs> really, really tricky one because our entire healthcare system is easily sort of, it's a patchwork. And it's not particularly a system. I even describe it as my students, it's a collection of band-aids. We had a problem, we put a band-aid over it and we just accumulated this almost baseball size collection of band-aids. And so how it's funded, the answer is it depends. It's a very fragmented system. If you have private health insurance, you have one system. If you're on Medicaid, you have another, but that changes depending on where you live. And so our basic system, so on the low income side is 
If you live in Franklin County, here where uh, Columbus is, it's a very different system than if you're in one of the further out counties. So we have Medicaid will cover some mental health services. And then it'll depend if your county has a tax levy on property tax, then they can fund additional services. But in some counties, there's not enough money to do that. So those services aren't available. So the services available depend where you live. It depends on your, it's, this is the sort of the biggest problem in the US system is none of us know what we're, what our system is. If you become pregnant, what are my circumstances gonna be? Well, we don't know. And they're just all the different examples we can give where it's, folks are often eligible and just don't realize it because it's just not what I grew up with. So basically we have our private health insurance system, but then the Medicaid, and then also some local county funded mental health services. Um, kind of like a follow-up question to that. Um, here in Franklin County, are there any free programs for people of low income status? Many, many. So the basic system we have is local mental health boards. And those have been merged in with our addiction services boards, but they used to call be Adam H boards, mental health boards, community mental health boards, but Franklin County has its own. So that is always the place to start. And if you go to a provider directly, they will approach those about funding. So the, the local county funding is available and the state funding flows through them. And then also federal funding flows down through them. So the basic unit is the county here in Franklin, in Columbus. In other counties, they've merged across a few counties, but for Franklin County, you start at the local community health board. And so that one, there are some small nonprofits, but the place to start uh, who coordinates all of our funding is gonna be that local Franklin County Mental Health Board. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Sieber. Uh, moving on again, um, Dr. Cullen, we have a question for you. We were hoping to hear about some things that contribute to racial disparities since it's been especially a huge issue that's come into um, more of the national spotlight over the last few months. It's always been a huge issue, obviously. Um, and then also, how does that translate to infant mortality rates? Mm -hmm. So I think when we're talking about racial disparities in health, kind of writ large, um, following up on something that Dr. Sieber said, it's complicated. It's, it's, it's not a one size fits all solution. So it depends on what population you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, what racial and ethnic group you're talking about, where do they live? Do they live in a central city? Do they live in an urban area? Do they live in a suburban area? Are they uh, middle income, you know, working class, lower income? All, you know, are we talking about men, women? Like all of these things uh, kind of tell us something about how racial uh, disparities in health emerge. But I think, one thing we've kind of been focused on for the last couple of decades is uh, really more in terms of what happens in the healthcare setting and also the individual choices that people make about their health behaviors. And not that, that, that these things aren't important, they're very important. However, um, the things that I tend to focus on in my research are the structural factors. 
So what things that exist on an institutional level or at a societal level that are really driving these racial disparities in health. Um, and when we're talking about uh, you know, health outcomes among African-Americans, we can uh, really focus on things like the built environment, right? What, what do the neighborhoods look like in which African-Americans largely live? Um, what kinds of opportunities are, are there for them in these neighborhoods to uh, improve their health or protect their health? Um, you know, are they constantly being exposed to environmental hazards uh, or environmental exposures? Um, what does the quality of their housing stock look like? Um, another thing that, you know, people have talked a lot about is uh, contact with the criminal justice system, right? And, and, and racial disparities in policing. Um, and we know that this has a huge impact on African-American communities. Um, and, and, you know, the focus tends to be on young black men, but it also impacts everybody living in these communities, right? Like all family members. Um, so what happens in terms of how uh, police uh, interact with the community and how uh, individuals also interact with the criminal justice system. And then another thing that, that is a big kind of piece of this puzzle is exposure to um, racial discrimination. And you know, again, those things happen on all different levels. So there's of course interpersonal discrimination, right? What, what transpires in between you know, uh, the interaction between two individuals, but we also have to think about the kind of institutional policies and the um, societal policies, the structural policies that make it so that African-Americans are, are more likely to encounter these instances of unfair treatment because of their race. I want to um, jump in and um, add on to what both Cynthia and Eric have said. So infant mortality rate of African-Americans reflect, well, I should preface that. If the infant mortality rate directly reflects the neighborhood. And that's why this is such an important measure of public health. So when we went into Wineman Park, I looked at two census tracts. The Wineland Park, as you know, is right around OSU. And the infant mortality rate when we went in there was 15 per thousand. So 15 babies died per thousand live births. And when I look at what was who was living in what census tract, those babies were all living on the east side, which was predominantly African American. So six babies died there and they were most, all five of them were black babies. So that's how I approached Wineland Park. And what I discovered was it was um, the home of the Short North Gang and uh, which was later indicted for the largest federal crimes in history in Ohio. Um, and our moms were living there when there were police raids, they were pregnant, and they knew all the, all the guys that were arrested for extortion, murder, really serious crimes. And these were pregnant women living in that neighborhood. Some of these were their guys. So it wasn't just crime, but crime uh, mirrored the infant mortality rate. Dilapidated houses mirrored the infant mortality rate. And it took 
a whole collaborative. It wasn't just moms-to-be that made a difference. We reduced infant mortality rate five-fold. Columbus Public Health looked at um, the infant mortality, the number of babies that died in those two census tracts four years before we went in, four years after, and we had a five-fold reduction in infant deaths. And I like to take credit, but that wasn't, you know, moms-to-be helped. We did a lot. We increased breastfeeding, we reduced smoking, and we helped with safe sleep. None of our babies died in moms-to-be, but it was the whole collaborative. It was the foundation, Columbus Foundation, Chase, Huntington, it was giving jobs, it was rehabbing houses. The number of Section 8 houses remained there so yes, it was gentrification, but the total number of Section 8 low-income houses remained the same. We're still there. We've been there for 10 years every day, every Wednesday for 10 years. And so we've shown that Ohio State can be consistent. We don't leave you. We're not going to abandon you. We're not a research, we were research, but we're a service. Um, and I think from what, you know, again, it wasn't just moms to be, but it was a whole community effort. And that can be done in all the other neighborhoods, Linden, Hilltop, Southside, where you hear all the crimes and all the early deaths, everything occurs in those neighborhoods that have high infant mortality rates. And it and I've said this, you know, in a lot of forums, it's not public health that's not gonna solve this. They don't have enough money, they have no money. It's not Medicaid that's gonna solve it. They have no money. It's we've got to get business, we've got to get people like you and our students and everyone involved if we're gonna solve this. I also yeah, want to, I think that's a great thing. So go ahead. I just wanted to follow up on something that Dr. Gabby said, which was, you know, when we talk about these sort of, you know, what we in sociology call these structural level factors, but these neighborhood exposures um, or these neighborhood conditions, you know, how do they get into the body and how do they like erode health or accelerate aging or contribute to health disparities? Um, you know, it happens through the human stress response, right? So all of us have this innate stress response that thanks to evolution, we are born with and helps to protect us from harm throughout our life. But the problem is, if this um, stress response is chronically activated, if it's activated over and over and over again, we have problems turning it off. And so because of this overstimulation or overactive overactivation of the stress response, it can actually cause our cells um, and our bodies to age more rapidly, right? So, and, and that sort of chronic overactivation of the stress response happens because of the neighborhood exposures that Dr. Gabby was just talking about, right? And the thing to think about when you're dealing with maternal and infant health outcomes is that you know, sure, we're, we're interested in moms when they're pregnant and we're interested in, in babies right soon after they're born in utero and after they're born, but we have to consider what have these moms experienced throughout their entire life course that have brought them to this place in their health. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to hear from Eric, but when I was at Vanderbilt at ten, in Tennessee and um, working on the same project, the same idea, but um, you have to go back to slavery and think of slavery and the epigenetics that you just mentioned, Cynthia, and, you know, the shortened telomeres, mm -hmm. the, the stresses that have come down from generation after generation that um, have produced this disparities. And it's passed on, we know, through the epigenetics. And we focus specifically on reducing stress and improving nutrition. That's been our, our, our main focus with Moms-to-be uh, because of just the things that you've said. We know that the, the stress and the biological impact of stress and the lack of protective factors. And that influences that life course model that we use as our framework for moms-to-be and, uh, and others do. But we chose to look at the pregnancy in the life course to improve protective factors, meaning more social support, better nutrition, connecting to um, the healthcare system. So, and then the mental health is a huge issue. And, and I, I think Eric, one, one thing you didn't mention that has been helpful to us, we got a nice big grant from Aetna to allow our moms to go directly to our mental health providers at the OSU Medical Center and without free of charge. Now, when it, you know, what happens when it runs out, you know, but anyway, it's huge. It's a really important factor in our moms reducing stress. And dads, we have a dads to be program. Okay, now I'll stop. Thank you so much for your perspectives. So we actually have another question for Dr. Gabby. Um, I know you touched on this a little bit, but um, what sort of resources are available to help young moms with their education? Uh, the Scholar House, the OSU Scholar House. <laughs> I mean, any mom who wants to go to college um, and has a child or is pregnant. Now they only have 38 uh, apartments, but we have had moms in the Scholar House at OSU, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's a fabulous resource. But I, you know, we, we, moms have all range of education, you know, some haven't, aren't even able to pass their GED, but they can work. All of our moms want to work and we provide them with educational opportunities. A lot of our moms we connect with become community health workers, for example, so they can get a certificate. And um, Columbus State is a great place. Uh, training to become a medical assistant. So these are kind of opportunities that we uh, provide and open doors for our moms. It's a really important question. And again, they all want to work. A lot of them have health issues and who wants to hire a pregnant woman anyway, who's like about to deliver next week. You know, it's a lot of barriers for them, but uh, they do all want to work and they all want to further their education. Um, Dr. Sieber, we have another question for you. Um, we 
we're hoping you could discuss a little bit about what kinds of healthcare reform you think is needed to address disparities in coverage and access to, the, to care, particularly for expecting mothers and also just for like the general urban population in Columbus. That's, that is actually tricky. There's what reforms we are feasible and then really where we would like to be. The underlying problem is just, as we said before, it's so fragmented. Every, there's so many things that just slip through the cracks. There are little incremental changes that we're doing. Like one of the really interesting ones we're watching is on the Medicaid side, our managed care companies are now able to almost pay for social determinants of health services. In the past, it was, you were penalized for it. It was actually it came straight out of your profits. Now it can count as a medical service. You just can't be reimbursed for it. And so the pendulum is inching that way, but very slowly. But it's all boils down to in the system, who's responsible for this? Because in the healthcare world, we see patients. I population level stuff. And so who is responsible? So our goal is how do we start to close these gaps and create a more, I mean, what would truly be a system? However, what that's what we need to do, how we're going to get there, it's going to be baby steps. The U.S. doesn't do big healthcare changes. When we look at what's feasible over the next, oh, probably four to 10 years, it's probably not going to be at the federal level. It's going to be at the state level. And so it's going to be 50 different systems all changing in different ways, which is very innovative. And we're going to see some interesting stuff. But again, it's going to become even more fragmented. And so if I move states, this is the way we did it in Idaho. What's it going to, I'm from Tennessee. What's, what's it going to be like in Tennessee? I, I don't know. We will eventually get there. But it's all about how do we create a full system and start to work public health into these systems. We're inching along, but we have a very, very long way to go. And it's how many children are going to die before we get there. Thank you for that perspective. I think that's it was a really important discussion there. So Ilona, if you'd like to take the next question then. Um, we now have a question for Dr. Cohen. Um, can you talk about racial biases in the healthcare field and how they affect health outcomes? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so there have been um, a, a decades worth of studies that have looked at racial biases, um, largely in clinical encounters. So whether that's uh, at a doctor's office or whether that's at the hospital, um, or in the emergency department. Um, and one thing that they've shown kind of over and over and over again is that, uh, you know, these racial biases um, really do impact what happens in the clinical setting. So for example, um, it has been shown that uh, African-Americans are less likely to receive timely treatment for, um, for recent heart attacks, recent myocardial infarctions that can really prevent not only death, but 
uh, subsequent severe disability or, or morbidity after the heart attack. Um, it's, it's been shown that they are less likely to receive pain medication um, and effective pain medication and treatment uh, in the emergency department, right? So uh, there are lots of biases that all that all clinicians bring to, to with them into these exchanges that happen in a doctor's office or in a hospital. And right, one thing we know, um, you know, people have kind of outward biases, overt biases, but there's a lot of covert stuff that happens that people aren't aware of um, and, and sort of uh, definitely covert, um, I mean, overt biases, right, that can impact the clinical encounter, but also we all have um, more covert biases that a lot of times we are not aware that are actually going on. And these can also affect the kind of healthcare um, that people receive and not just the types of healthcare, but the types of messages they get from their, from, uh, their clinicians or nurses, right? Or front office staff um, that can often make uh, people feel very uncomfortable, unheard and less likely to come back and receive care. Yeah, I think that's super important to consider, especially when um, looking at kind of where these problems are stemming from in the first place, the circumstances of everyone. Um, so thank you for sharing. Um, Ilona, I believe, did you have the next question? Yes. Um, I'm just going to skip over Dr. Gabby's. Um, Dr. Sieber, could you also discuss the burden of unmet reproductive health care? And uh, how does the current policy that we have in place um, with funding affect health outcomes, particularly in urban areas? This is, this is an area that we're sliding backwards in all honesty. It's, so a lot of our reproductive health services are not major medical centers. These are clinic level and everywhere from contraception to other reproductive health. Medicaid is a major funder of this. And when you think along the lines of Medicaid, Medicaid pays for over half of the births in Ohio. This is a major funding source. And there are more increasing restrictions around what clinics can do. And as we make this harder for clinics to do stuff, look, we're not surprised that some of them get out of it. And so we're actually seeing less and less access reproductive health services on this side. We do not have measurement yet of what the health outcomes are going to be, but we expect there will be health outcomes. But if you cut how if it can't be paid for, eventually people are going to stop doing it. And so this is one of our major policy concerns of how is this going to impact women and their children? It's just we don't. It's become a political matter. Mm -hmm. we cut off the funding source, it will have an impact. We just don't know what yet. Um, Dr. Colin, we have another um, question for you as well. Um, do you have any thoughts on what can be done to reduce and eliminate biases in general? Um, so I think, uh, you know, when we're talking about reducing 
um, racial disparities in health, it's kind of important to remember to work on a multi-level um, approach. So, you know, is it important to do things on an interpersonal level? Absolutely, right? So whether that's doing um, trainings among clinicians or service providers, um, right? Uh, you know, all different types of service providers, social service providers, not just those in the medical field. Um, but we also have to look sort of beyond just the interpersonal level. So much of the research that I do, you know, focuses on these more structural level factors. Um, and I think there's a lot we can do. I think when we start talking about racial disparities, disparities in health, we, we kind of get bogged down, we get that deer in the headlights look like, oh my God, we can't change them overnight. So there's nothing we can do, right? But uh, I think when you start realizing that all different types of policies are likely to have impacts on health disparities. I mean, one that's um, getting a fair amount of attention and press these days is housing policy, right? So looking at um, access to safe and affordable housing, but also the pre preventing evictions, right? Slowing the rates of evictions. And of course, this has gotten a lot of uh, attention because of COVID, right? We, we don't want people becoming homeless in the middle of a global pandemic, but I would argue we don't want people becoming homeless ever because um, that's really, really bad for your health among other things. Uh, and so there's a lot of different policy solutions that we can work on that will not only help to, you know, in, in the case of preventing evictions, will help in terms of improving housing stability, but also improving um, racial disparities in health and also improving educational outcomes among, uh, you know, uh, populations that often experience eviction, right? So you, you can see these policy levers being pulled and they have like these wide ranging impacts. So I think we have to sort of start paying attention to the wide variety of outcomes that, that can be affected by changing one policy. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, it looks like we're um, nearing the end of the time. So I just wanted to take a moment and thank you both so much for your time and for joining us in this discussion. Um, it was great to have both of your different perspectives. I think it's very valuable as we look to um, share this issue with other people and educate people on this issue and hopefully get even more people involved um, long-term in enacting significant change. Um, so thank you again, and I hope you guys have a great night. If there's anything else you'd like to say, um, I appreciate hearing your thoughts. Otherwise, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank and, you. Yeah, and keep up the wonderful work. I mean, we need folks pursuing this and thank you.